0: Good morning, church. Grab a Bible, turn to Psalm 23, Psalm 23. Now, last February, you might, you might remember we uh, were in a series called Living in the Overflow, and uh, that series is based in the 23rd Psalm, and we, we spent three weeks and we looked at the first two verses of the 23rd Psalm, and this morning what I want us to do is pick up right where we left off, and uh, we're going to be spending this Sunday and the next three Sundays uh, right in the heart of uh, the 23rd Psalm as we really consider the implications, the, the, the blessing of living in the overflow of God's goodness today. So um, now what's interesting about the 23rd Psalm, this is one of the most well-known and one of the most uh, popular passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. If you're here today and you're listening uh, and you're not a Christian or maybe you didn't grow up in the church or you're, you're new to church, you're probably familiar with the 23rd Psalm uh, because it's often used in funerals or maybe your mom read it to you when you were growing up. And so the 23rd Psalm is, is definitely uh, worthy of our consideration today. Now, uh, I guess the question is this, why is it so popular? You know, why is it so well known? And I think, I think that's a great question. And I think the answer is because it really is all about the goodness of God. It's all about the goodness of God. So there's not a passage of Scripture that speaks more poetically and more beautifully uh, and more completely, I guess you could say, about the goodness of God than Psalm 23. And so I really want to take these few weeks and several weeks out of the entire year and focus our attention Uh, on the goodness of God because when you start thinking about God's goodness it has profound implications for us uh, and how we live every single day now let me just begin with this because this is this is really the foundation and it's and it's this question that we we come back to over and over and over again and and it's the whole question of of this is God really good is God really good the interesting thing is every single one of us has to answer that question. Is God really good? You know when you, you, you wake up one day and you go into work and uh, you're notified that you've lost your job. Is God really good? You, you, you've been abandoned by your mom and dad. Is God really good? Your spouse leaves you for someone else. Is God really good? You uh, meet with your doctor and your doctor tells you, you have six months to live. Is God really good? See, is he good all the time? Is he good some of the time? Is he good none of the time? We all have to answer that question. We sing about it. We talk about it all the time. And, and how we answer that question is going to impact your life like no other answer to any other question you know, in Psalm 100, verse 5, the psalmist writes, writes this, for the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. You see, the Bible is really clear that God is good all of the time. In fact, I will, I will submit to you, church, that this is the, the central theme of the word of God. So you go to Genesis, you look at the first few chapters in the in the book of Genesis and what you see is you see God creating the heavens and the earth you see him creating the sky and the animals and the vegetation and the oceans he creates Adam and Eve and what does he do he pronounces it good and then and then the story takes a huge turn in in, the, in a bad direction as sin enters into the world and we experience the fall we experienced a sin cursed creation and then you get this this real contrast that happens within Scripture. You're focused on the goodness of God. You see that clearly all through Scripture, and that's contrasted with our sinfulness all the way through. So God shows his goodness to us, even though we're sinful through the story of Scripture. And then you get to the book of Revelation, and God is recreating again. He takes the heaven and the earth. He combines it together. He recreates it. And he says, there'll be no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. I'm making all things new. I'm making all things good. You see it all over scripture. And so that is a sign to us that this is an important piece that we need to remember and we need to keep in the forefront of our minds. Now, why is it so important? I I think, and this is what I said uh, back in February, that when we forget the goodness of God, it causes all kinds of problems in our relationship with God. I think the first problem that it causes is it causes ungratefulness within us because we start to think that we are the source of all the blessing in our life. And so we, we cease giving praise and thanks to God because we think we're the, we're the ones who've secured all of the blessings in our life. So it leads to ungratefulness, it leads to exhaustion, because what happens is we stop relying on God and we start relying on ourselves because we don't trust him to bring the good into our life that, that we really need. And so we're just, we become exhausted because we're trying to control and manipulate circumstances that in honesty we really don't have a lot of control over. And then I think it leads to discouragement and depression because oftentimes we find ourselves in circumstances that are just too big for us. Like there's just nothing we can do to change the circumstances. And we choose, we choose unbelief, we choose to doubt God's goodness, and we end up depressed and discouraged. You see, this whole area of the goodness of God is the area where the enemy tries to sow doubt in our minds. He tries to get us to question the goodness of God in our lives. And he suggests to us that God is holding out on us, that that God really can't be trusted, that he doesn't have your best and my best in mind for us. Think about about what happened in the garden uh, with Adam and Eve. When the serpent tempted Eve, do you know what his strategy was? His strategy was to lead her to question the goodness of God. You know, he went to her and he said, now, did God say you can't eat of all the trees in the garden? And she said, no, he didn't say that at all. He said, you could eat of all the trees except for the one tree. And he said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And you know what the serpent said? The serpent said, you are not going to die. Now, at that moment, he's calling God a liar. Do you guys realize what he's doing at that moment? And he said this. He He said, you know, God doesn't want you to eat of that tree because he knows if you eat of it, You'll, you'll, you'll be like God. You'll know good from evil. And the implication of that is, is that God is holding back something from you. There's something good he doesn't want you to have. And therefore, you can't really trust him. And if there's something good, you've got to secure it for yourself. And that's exactly what she and Adam tried to do. Now, here's the bottom line, church. The enemy wants us to doubt the goodness of God because he just wants to destroy us. He wants to destroy our relationship with God, but God wants us to trust and live in the overflow of his goodness because he wants to bless us, and that's what this is all about. So that's just kind of the intro, guys. I'm just getting started this morning. You guys ready? All right. Now, let's just read through the 23rd Psalm. We've read it so many times, but let's uh, let's stand, if you're willing and able, and let's read it through. And uh, let's think about the goodness of God as we walk through this. Psalm 23, David writes this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. This is God's word for God's people. You may be seated. Now, this morning, I really want us to dial into verse 3. If you notice the first part of verse 3, David says this. He says, he restores my soul. What does he mean by that? What is he really talking about when he says, he restores my soul? I really want us to spend our time today just kind of focusing on what God's restoration looks like for us uh, this morning. Now, I think the First place we really need to begin is we need to begin with what is a soul because he says he restores my soul. So what is your soul? You know the Bible says you have a body and you have a soul and you have a spirit. Okay. So what's the difference between your soul and your spirit? And the answer is I don't know. I'm not really sure. All right. Um, I think my hunch is only the word of God knows. Because the Bible says that the word of God is sharper than any two edged sword and it divides soul and spirit. That's pretty deep. And that's beyond, that's above my pay grade right there, okay? And so now instead of focusing on that, let's kind of consider what our soul really is. There are three parts of your soul that make up who we are, make up who you are as a person there's your mind, there's your will. And there's your, your emotions. So obviously with your mind, you think. With your will, you make choices. And with your emotions, you feel. And all three of those really make up who we are and what we're becoming every day as, as people. And so my soul is the part of me that thinks and chooses and feels. So here's the question can your mind and will and emotions become damaged yes they can absolutely they can just think about this consider your mind just for a moment what sin does to us is it darkens our minds it it uh it it makes our thinking futile basically that's what sin does. Sin is so corrosive, it prevents us from seeing clearly and from thinking clearly for more specifically, I should say, it really prevents us from processing the goodness of God clearly. See, in other words, we're a little skeptical. We, we, our, our, our disposition is to kind of doubt the goodness of God. That's what sin does to us. It does it all the time. And so as a result, we are vulnerable to believing lies about God, lies about ourselves, and lies about other people. And so we fall into this trap of thinking these lies, these wrong thoughts. And I I shared with you a couple of weeks ago that spiritual growth is the process of identifying the lies that we believe and then replacing those lies with the truth of God's Word. That's what spiritual growth is. And that's the process that God has started the moment uh, you became a Christian. Now, the second thing: consider your emotions and how they can become damaged. Now, when you think about that, it's it's very easily to become uh, emotionally depleted or drained emotionally. It's it's very easily to get overly emotional uh, because of stress or anxiety or you know just being overworked or whatever. So, our emotions can become uh, damaged. Uh, think about how our will can become damaged. Think about this, have you ever thought, I know I ought to do the right thing, and I want to do the right thing, I just don't do the right thing. You ever thought that? Like, I know what I ought to do, and I really wanna do it, but I never end up doing it. Now, what is that? Well, that's called a damaged will. You could, you could also call it slavery, you could call it an addiction, um, you could call it bondage. Now, what do you call it when one or more of these is damaged? We call that brokenness. We call it brokenness. And the truth is this. We're all broken in some way. We're all sinful people. We're all broken in some way. And so because we live in a fallen world, we are fallen people, and, in, and we are broken in these areas. The, the, you know, this brokenness is caused by our sin, other times it's caused by other people sinning against us, and then other times it's just the fact that we live in a fallen, fallen, broken world. But here's the good news about our brokenness. Our brokenness does not define us as God's children. The grace and the mercy of God is what defines us even in the midst of our brokenness. And that's that is really, really good news. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to just try to answer two questions right from the 23rd Psalm. What causes brokenness in our lives? And then how does Jesus restore us from brokenness? What causes our brokenness and how does Jesus restore us? Let's look at the let's look at the first one. What causes my brokenness? I I really think that there are at least three causes of brokenness uh, in our lives. There's Uh, there's obviously more, but I want to really just focus on these three. The first one is this. I think the first cause of brokenness are grudges. Grudges. Now you're like, what do you mean by that? When I hold a grudge against someone who's hurt me or offended me, when I choose resentment, when I choose to kind of some sustained anger towards that person, that's a grudge. And the truth is this, church. We're going to get hurt. We're going to get hurt many, many times. Sometimes the hurt will come intentionally from other people. Sometimes it'll come unintentionally from other people. But we're going to get hurt. And so what happens is as we journey through life, these hurts start to to kind of pile up. And if you don't deal with the hurts, they turn into unforgiveness. They turn into a grudge. And you start carrying that grudge everywhere you go. And it becomes a huge issue. Now, this bitterness, this unforgiveness, this resentment, you know, it may be the result of at some point you were maybe abandoned by your mom and dad or you were betrayed by a spouse or a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Uh, it could be that um, you know, a business partner cheated you in some way. Or maybe maybe you were wounded by a church and you are hurt. And it really doesn't matter the source of the hurt. What really matters is how you respond to the hurt. That's really the question. Your response to it. And so you have two choices. You can either let love cover it or You dwell on it and dwell on it and dwell on it. And what happens is that hurt begins to become a part of you. It begins to define you. And you begin to carry it around with you everywhere you go. Now, church, listen to me on this. This is so important. Here's the thing about carrying a grudge. Carrying a grudge does not hurt the person that hurt you it just hurts you you've heard me say it before I'll say it again carrying a grudge is drinking poison and hoping it kills someone else see what carrying a grudge does what what you're doing when you carry a grudge is you bring the pain from the past and you carry it with you into your present everywhere you go and you keep the wound open and the wound becomes to, starts, to, starts to define who you are as a person. You start to become known as a person with a grudge. Because you can't hide it. Like it's on your disposition. It's in your attitude. It's in your words. It's in how you feel. It's in how you think. See, it's poisoning you. And, and so, so carrying a grudge really doesn't hurt the person who's hurt you, but it hurts you. And so what the Holy Spirit wants to do is bring restoration to you. He wants to restore and bring healing to you. And our, our souls are restored. Our souls are set free as we let it go, as we let it go. Now, some of you push back at this point, and you're like, well, Scott, but you don't understand how I've been hurt. You just don't understand the devastation. And you're right, I probably don't. And you would probably say, these people that you're, you're telling me, I need to just kind of let this go, they don't deserve me to forgive them. And here would be my response. You don't forgive because they deserve it. You forgive because God has forgiven you. You forgive because that's what God's asked you to do. You also forgive because you don't want it to poison you anymore. And so, and so that's, that's the place that God wants to restore us to. That's the place where he wants us to, to really seek and pursue. And I will tell you, church, it's a process. It's not this, I mean, I, I mean, maybe sometimes it can be an instant decision, but most of the time, in my experience, it's a process, and it takes some time. But it's a process that you have to own, and you've got to take it to God so that he can do his restoring work within you. You know, I heard about a professor that, that said to his classroom full of students, he said, he said suppose you have $86,400 and somebody stole $10 from you. And he asked the students, he said, now are you going to throw away the $86,390 just because you lost the $10? And the student said, no way. And this is what he said. He said, uh, basically every day you have 86,400 seconds. And let's say a hurt takes 10 seconds. Are you going to throw away the 86,390 seconds remaining in your day and just get stuck in that 10 second period where you got hurt? He said to his room full of students, you need to let it go. You need to let it go. And that's the work of restoration that God wants to bring. That's, that's the brokenness that God wants to fix. But there's a second cause of brokenness in our life. So there's grudges, but there's also guilt. There's also guilt. Now, as we kind of think about what guilt is, guilt is this, it's a feeling of remorse for something that we know that we've done wrong, right? It's, it's, a, it's a feeling of responsibility, of... Um, being disobedient to God or hurting someone else. And so, um, and so typically what we hear is guilt is a bad thing. That's typically what we hear. My father-in-law Pastor, uh, was um, a pastor, and, and uh, my father-in-law, the late Woody Church, he would always say this. He would say, uh, guilt is really a good thing because it should drive you to the cross. But if you don't let it drive you to the cross, then it becomes a bad thing you'd always say that. And so really the bottom line is this that unresolved guilt is a bad thing. It is a really bad thing. There are a lot of people carrying around burdens of guilt. A lot of Christians carrying burdens of guilt for something they've done in the past that they have no busy no business really caring and what happens is unresolved guilt is toxic in our relationship with God and it's toxic in our relationships with each other because what happens is it just it just creates this wall between us and God and it keeps God at a distance and it keeps other people at a distance because we're living our lives in shame and in guilt and so it creates this barrier that just breaks us at the deepest level of who we really are. You know, the bottom line, let me just get really, really practical with this. You should only carry guilt for about 10 to 15 seconds. Really. You should only carry it for about 10 to 15 seconds. That should be enough time for you to realize, hey, I did something wrong. I need to make this right. I need to confess it to God, repent of it, and, and, and be on my way. That's, that's, that's about how long uh, you should be carrying guilt but you know what a lot of people assimilate guilt into the deepest part of their soul and it's toxic church I mean just imagine think about it this way this is not the greatest illustration but it does communicate I think something on this I mean imagine all the trash that you're going to use today okay and and I mean, we don't even think about it we use something and we're done with it and we just kind of throw it away but just think about all the trash that would accrue through the course of a day and just imagine, just for a moment, you decide, I'm not going to throw it away. I'm just going to carry it with me. So everywhere you go, you're carrying this bag of trash everywhere you go. So, so everything that you try to do, every conversation that you try to have, everywhere you go, there's this odor of trash, this burden of trash that you carry. And that's what a lot of people do with guilt. Instead of carrying it to the cross, they leave it. Unresolved. Let me show you this uh, from the book of Ezra. This is Ezra confessing the sins of the people of Israel, and uh, even a nation can have guilt for its sin against God. And this is his expressing it. Uh, he's praying to God, "Oh my God, I'm ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my 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 God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads." and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens that's a lot of guilt and what does it do it keeps us from wanting to see God it keeps us from wanting to even be in his presence it separates us from God now here's the question what do you do you do with guilt what do you do with it well when you have a grudge you have to forgive but with guilt you have to ask God's forgiveness for you and that's what you do. And I love 1 John 1.9, John writes this, he, he says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now you know what I, what I call that verse? I always call that verse the bar of soap for a Christian. That's what it is. Because, because we should be using that verse every single day. It's not a, it's not a license to sin. It's a gateway to grace is what it is. And so as we, as we are reminded that we're guilty of something, we deal with it, we confess it, we own it, we don't minimize it, we don't rationalize it, we don't beat ourselves up for it. God is not glorified in that either, church. What we do is we just admit it. In fact, the word confess just means to agree with God. That's what it means. And so... That's what we need to do is we need to confess it and, and, um, and then move on from there. Now, you know, I've had people say to me in, in, in the counseling room, they'll say, Scott, now I know God has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. You ever heard that? You know, what's interesting about that is there's not a single verse in the Bible, not a single instance in the Bible where we're told to forgive ourselves. Not one time. Isn't that interesting? What the Bible says is believe the gospel and repent of your sins. What the Bible says is confess it, own it, believe and and receive the forgiveness of God and then move on from there. That's, That's what the Bible says because being forgiven by God means the sin has been done away with permanently. That's what it means. And so, and so when we say that, well, I know God has forgiven me, but, but I just can't forgive myself, we're basically saying this, church, God has his standard, and we've met that standard, but I have higher standards than he does. So therefore, I can't forgive myself. That is craziness. That is craziness. Basically, what we're saying, this is another way to say it, I know Jesus made payment for my sins, but his payment didn't cover it enough. Now, look at Psalm 103, verse 12. This is another way to look at it. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions or our guilt from us. Now, if God has done that, why are we hanging on to it? Why are we hanging on to it? If he's removed it that far, that's that's a pretty good haul away from us. So why are we hanging on to it? So don't let... Grudges, don't let guilt be the cause of brokenness in your life. And then lastly, and I'll just touch on this briefly, I'll just say this, grief is a cause of brokenness. Grief is. Now what do I mean by that? Just in life we're going to get hurt. In life we're also going to experience losses. Uh, We're going to experience the death of friends, the death of friendships, we're gonna experience the death of family members. We might even experience the death of dreams. There are wins and losses in life. That is, if you follow Jesus and you, or you don't follow Jesus, there are wins and losses. And part of, part, of the, part of what God gives us is he gives us this ability to grieve, which helps us manage the losses. It helps us to manage the transitions and to get through the losses of life. Grief will be a part of you if you're a Christian or not. Now, when does grief become the cause of our brokenness? I think think it happens when we refuse to deal with our grief. Like we know we're grieving, we know we're hurting on the inside, but we're really not willing to deal with it. We're really not willing to let ourselves grieve and let ourselves go through the process, uh, and we just kind of, hang, kind of hang on to it, and uh, it becomes unresolved over time. And, and what can happen, grief can be some, become so strong that it overwhelms you, like a tidal wave, and it just kind of takes, takes you under, and then it begins to define who you are every single day. Now there's a really interesting passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 14, uh, where Jesus hears the news that John the Baptist was beheaded, and uh, it was heartbreaking news to him, and it's interesting because Matthew records what Jesus did upon hearing the news. Matthew tells us that he withdrew by himself for a period of time, and it doesn't tell us why, but I think I think it's a good guess to basically say that he was grieving, he was processing the loss of John the Baptist, And here's the thing, church, if he had to process grief, you and I will need to process it. Now, those are the causes of brokenness in our life. Let me just, just kind of transition here to number two and, and answer this question. How does Jesus restore us? Let me give you just three quick ways that he, he restores us. I would say, I would say this, and this is, this is the gospel in a nutshell, that Jesus restores us because he reconciles me to God. He he restores me by reconciling me to God. What he says is this, give me your guilt and your sin, and I will give you my goodness. That's what he says, and that's what he did on the cross. We call it, and you've heard me say this in the past, uh, the great exchange. What Jesus had in mind 2,000 years ago, what really occurred is as he took our guilt and sin, we received his goodness and he took on our punishment. And so for every sin, there has to be punishment. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus, in essence, became our representative. He, he, he became our stand-in, if you will. He, 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 he uh, entered the arena on our behalf and he paid the penalty on our behalf. That is that is the very essence of the gospel. Now, some of us will say, "Scott, I just don't really get that. I mean, I don't understand that. I mean, that was two thousand years ago, and and then I'm living today, and I just I don't know if I get how Jesus could be my representative." Well, let me let me just kind of illustrate it this way. Um, you know, back when the Colts won the Super Bowl, uh, when we played against the Chicago Bears, you, you you've heard me share this. Uh, Luann and I went to the Hoosier Dome, and uh, we we went for the the, the Super Bowl celebration and Luann and I had Colts jerseys on and I mean there were so many people in there the Colts came in and everybody was celebrating that Super Bowl and we were chanting we're number one we're number one now here's the interesting thing about that church I did not play a single down in the Super Bowl I didn't play one down I didn't even I wasn't even on the field the entire season how in the world can I stand up and say we're number one I didn't play. I didn't win anything. You know what? Because of my faith in the Colts, you guys already know where I'm going with this, right? Because of my love for the Colts, their victory became mine. Their performance became mine. Their goodness became mine. You see that? They were my representatives. And that's exactly the gospel. It's in, it's in all of life. We have representatives in every single area of our life that, that represent us. We identify with them. They represent and speak for us. And that is exactly what Jesus did. His performance by faith, hope, and love becomes mine. And I put on the jersey of his righteousness, even though I'm in the process of being made righteous, so that... This is crazy. God sees me as righteous. Isn't that amazing? It's just pretty incredible. I love this. Let me share it with you. Romans five eighteen. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, that was Adam. He was our first representative. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's all of us. So by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. That is all of us if we are in Christ. It's pretty incredible. All right, so. So what he does is he restores us by reconciling us to God. He deals with our guilt. But secondly, what he does is he refines my character. He refines me. He changes me. He takes, listen to this, church, he takes my hurts and he turns them into his holiness. Did you hear that? He takes all of those hurts that have that have kind of accrued up and what he does is he turns them into my holiness he takes all the bad things in my life and he uses them for my good and so if you're a child of God if you love him and you're committed to his purpose he says all things work together for good and so when we go through suffering and adversity and we experience hurts and pains in our life our question is why is this happening to me Here it is again and again and again. And so we come back to that same question over and over again. And the question that I want to train you to ask is, God, what do you want to teach me? How do you want to grow me? You see, God's work in our lives of restoration is he wants to make us like Jesus, and the blueprint that he's following is the character of Jesus. Let me, let me show you a picture of the character of Jesus in Galatians 5.23. Uh, we see this. Paul writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against the, such things there is no law. Now, as I look at that, I see the fruit of the Spirit, obviously. But you know what else I see there? That's a picture of Jesus. Because Jesus is perfect love, he's perfect peace, he's perfect joy, he's perfect patience, he's perfect kindness. Do you know what God's doing? He's following that blueprint. He's trying to replicate that blueprint in me and in you. Isn't that amazing? And so God has promised to take the bad things in our life and use them for good. Now, let's say that God wants to grow your patience. How does he do that? He puts you in line at the BMV. That's what he does. Um, He puts you on the waiting list at Cheesecake Factory at 6 o'clock on Saturday night. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Yeah, he will often put you in the opposite situation of the quality he's trying to build in you. So if he wants to grow your capacity to love, guess what? He's going to put some unlovely people around you. If he wants to grow your peace, you know what he's going to do? He's going to put you in the midst of chaos. If he wants to grow your gentleness, you know what he's going to do? He's going to surround you with very annoying people. And don't look at them right now. I mean, you're not supposed to be doing that. Um, And often he's going to do this, right? He's going to put you in the opposite situation. And in the situation, you're going to think, what am I doing wrong? This never goes well. Well, he's working you out. He's refining your character, is what he's doing. He's he's restoring you to his original goal for you. Now, there's a great verse in Psalm 50, verse or Genesis 50, verse 20. And uh, let me let me show it to you. But let me let me just kind of set it up. You guys know the story of Joseph, right? You know that his brothers he came from a broken family. All right, broken with a capital broken. Um, his brothers hated him, and they plotted to kill him. They beat him up, threw him into a pit, changed their mind about killing them, really nice guys, and then just sold him into slavery down to Egypt. Down in Egypt, he had, to spend, he had to spend a few years in jail, and he was separated from his entire family. His dad thought he was dead, because they lied, his brothers lied. And so it's interesting, can you imagine being Joseph through all those years processing all of that hurt, all of that pain, and, uh, and he's reunited years later with his brothers, and this is what Joseph says. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. There's no question about that, but God meant it for good. Now, what he's talking about there is this. Joseph, Joseph had time to process the hurts that he had been through, he had time to process his own guilt in his relationship with god and and in, in the whole question of how he was going to respond he, he had to wrestle with and he responded positively and basically he said you know what god you are refining my character in all of this and so he was reconciled with his brothers because he refused to hold a grudge and he understood and saw that god was doing something big in him in the midst of the pain let me close with this lastly jesus restores us by renewing our strength he renews our strength now let me just say it this way we go through losses in life sometimes losses come in strengths you know just one right after another after another and what happens is we get depleted of spiritual strength of joy and peace and we need to be replenished we need to be filled up again and, um, and so this is the work of God's restoration of really renewing our strength. How does he do that? Well, let me tell you a story, and I'll close with this, because this, I think, illustrates how he does it beautifully. In Matthew 8, there's the story of, you guys know the story of the leper? And uh, the leper, Jesus is coming down out of the mountain. Thousands of people are following Jesus. And uh, the leper goes up to Jesus and says, if you're willing you could make me whole if you're willing you could make me clean you see having leprosy in Jesus day was basically a death sentence you were viewed like you were under a curse from god that's how you were viewed you couldn't go to temple to worship you you couldn't live with your family you you couldn't have the dignity of working and earning a living and you were just banished to a leper colony because they believed that leprosy was just contagious So you were just banished. And so the thought spiritually was, you're a broken person. You're cursed by God. So he goes up to Jesus and he says, if you're willing, you could make me whole. And you know what Jesus does? Jesus looks back at him and says, I am willing. And he touches him. He touches him and heals him instantly. Now church, this is fascinating because all he had to do was say the word. I mean, this is Jesus in the wind and the waves, obey him. But he reaches out and touches it. Why did he touch him? Well, you see, that leper probably had not been touched in years. Not a hug, not a pat on the back, not a handshake, not a fist bump, not a high five, nothing. Church, can you imagine that? And, and Jesus Jesus reaches out and touches him and heals him physically. But what is he doing? He's touching his soul. He's healing his soul and his spirit. And he's communicating to that leper, God loves you. You are restored. And I'm telling you, that guy had to be jumping for joy when he realized he was clean. He was whole. He was loved. And I think that's what Jesus would do, was doing. And I think he did that because Jesus, Jesus knew that in a very short time, he would be stepping into the great exchange. I think Jesus, Jesus did that because Jesus would allow himself to be broken physically and spiritually so that you and I wouldn't have to live broken lives anymore. That is the gospel. That is God's love for you, church. It is real, and it's your invitation today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for being our shepherd. Thank you that in you we have all that we need. Thank you that you restore our soul. And God, just in the quietness of this moment, with your Holy Spirit present with us, we just just want you to have the freedom to deal with us, to heal us, to restore us, to take away our grudges, to, to wash our guilt, strengthen us in the midst of our grief and God I pray that in the areas of brokenness today that are in this room in all of us your spirit would work to make us whole so give us your grace give us the gift of faith give us the gift of repentance Help us, God, to trust in your goodness. We love you, God. We praise you. And we just surrender our lives to you. And I want to give you a moment just to pray silently to yourself. Maybe there's something in your life that you need to surrender. Maybe a grudge, guilt for something, or some grief. Will you just take a moment and and just pray and offer that to God and ask Him to restore you? Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And by his stripes, we are healed. We are restored. We receive that healing. We receive that restoration by grace through faith. We thank you and praise you. And all of God's people said, amen, amen.